0: will regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed welcome to another edition of bearing arms cam and company my name is cam edwards glad to have you with us on the program today uh, special shout out by the way to our uh, vip members thank you so much for your support we really do appreciate it if you are not yet a uh, vip member of bearing arms We've got a great special this week and this week only. Uh, Just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, all one word, and you can get 40% off of your VIP membership. And we really do appreciate your support. It allows us to bring you programs like this each and every day where we talk about the uh, segment news and information from a perspective that you are not likely to find in the mainstream media. And that would certainly be the case with today's topic. We're going to be talking about uh, red flag laws, particularly a, a red flag proposal in Congress, and uh, Ryan Petty is uh, going to join us to talk about it. You know Ryan has been a guest on this program many times before. Uh, Ryan is a staunch Second Amendment supporter. His daughter, Elena, was murdered at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, in 2018. Uh, Ryan did not become a gun control supporter uh, as a result of that uh, horrific attack and his daughter's senseless murder. He doesn't believe in banning AR-15s. He doesn't believe in banning, quote-unquote, large-capacity magazines. He doesn't believe that we can uh, make ourselves safer by uh, uh, eradicating the, uh, the right to keep and bear arms. But one of the areas of disagreement between Ryan Payne and I has been on the subject of uh, red flag laws because uh, Ryan uh, does believe that there is a way to uh, have these red flag laws workable. Um, I, I'm not convinced. I, I have had major problems with virtually every red flag uh, law that I've seen implemented across the country. Um, but the thing I like about Ryan is that he and I can have this conversation. Even though we we may have points of disagreement, we have a lot more commonalities. Uh, and we have a lot more common concerns. And uh, I think that this allows us to approach this topic in a way that, frankly, you don't, I don't think, you get from a lot of media outlets. Uh, and I appreciate you, Ryan, joining me on this program because here's the thing as supportive as Ryan is when it comes to r- r- the theory of red flag laws, when it comes to this actual piece of federal legislation, yeah, Ryan's throwing up some red flags of his own. Take a look and a listen. Ryan, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's great talking with you today.
1: Cam, thanks for having me.
0: It's always nice to
1: see your face.
0: Harry, <laughs> hairier by the uh, by the minute it seems. Um, you know, and you and I have had, I think, some really, really good conversations in the past about uh, red flag laws. This is one of the few areas where you and I have a little bit of a difference of opinion, but I respect your opinion, uh, and I think that you respect mine. I think we've shared our concerns, we've shared uh, our, our thoughts about, you know, uh, uh, why these red flag laws uh maybe necessary we've talked about some of the uh, the uh the the concerns that i have with due process and things of that nature but we're not going to talk about our differences today because i think we're actually in agreement on a, a piece of federal legislation dealing with red flags this is hr 2577 um and, and this is a bill that uh would quote authorize the issuance of extreme risk protection orders a, a federal uh, extreme risk protection order, which uh, raises some uh, alarm bells for me. But you have some concerns about the language of this legislation.
1: I do, uh, and and I guess you could say it raises some red flags, um, if I can use that. Uh, sure, <laughs> use that phraseology. <laughs> yeah, look, I've got a couple of concerns. So, so to go just to set some context, because I think this is an area where. I mean, I hate to have to say this, but I am an ardent Second Amendment supporter. I, I think to your point, Cam, on most things, we agree 100 percent. I love the phrase shall not be infringed. Let me just start with that as context. But in the case of the Parkland killer, we learned from law enforcement that they didn't act because they they claimed they didn't have the tools to act in, in that case. The The killer had not done anything that that rose to the level that they could act. And so and so they said we need some other mechanism. Of course, uh, red flag laws were something that had been around for a while. And I think that's what we implemented here in Florida. But we did we did so with some protections. So, first of all, the petitioner in Florida needs to be a law enforcement officer now we this this is going to be important when we talk about twenty five seventy seven and the federal application of this, but at a minimum, you know if you or I have a dispute with a family member and we we feel like they're at risk of harming others or themselves, we have to go to law enforcement and law enforcement does an investigation before it even gets to a court hearing okay and so at a minimum, I like that. I, I, again, I know that maybe in the in the context of law enforcement, not everybody's as fortunate as I am to live in a in in a county where we have a fantastic sheriff, Sheriff Brady Judd, and I trust him, and I trust his leadership, and I trust him to do the right thing. I feel there's a good protection here, but not everybody's as fortunate as I am to live in a county with a great sheriff. Let's talk about 2577. So, in this case, the language as I read it, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but as I read it, it allows the petitioner to be either a family member or law enforcement. And I have concerns in that regard because let's go through the scenarios, right? A vindictive uh, partner, uh, ex spouse, um, uh, some other dispute comes up amongst family members, which we know they do. And what happens? Um, I run over to the court and I say, hey, this person's threatening me. Um, you need to uh, we need to get a red flag uh, petition against him. We need to remove the remove firearms and ammunition from the home, which is what twenty five seventy seven talks about. And and other than a one thousand dollar penalty for a false report, there are really no there are really no other sanctions against the petitioner. And it doesn't require law enforcement to do any sort of investigation. Um, That's uh, that's one of my concerns. The bigger concern maybe we can talk about in a bit is uh, the federalizing of this and what that what the implications of that are.
0: Yeah. And I do want to get into that. But uh, but but as you say, the false reporting, you know, look, it it is an issue. We've seen this in uh, Colorado. I remember there was a, a woman who. Uh ended up trying to file a, a red flag order against a law enforcement officer. Now, that was a pretty egregious effort to abuse the system, and it was caught. And I think she actually ended up facing criminal charges, be, but because criminal charges were a possibility, right, to, as a deterrent to, uh, to, to file these false red flags. Um, but we've seen this in other states as well. And, and unfortunately, you know, it, it, it is, I think, um, maybe an unintended consequence, but it is also a foreseeable consequence. Of, of having these things on the books. And so, uh, again, if you're going to have them, and we can talk about you know why I, I, I don't like the idea of red flag laws, but if they're going to be there, you're right, there needs to be those protections in place to uh, prevent or, or at least uh, try to dissuade individuals from filing these false reports. And one way to do that, as you say, is to, uh, to, to, to narrow that sort of gate through which these applications can go so that it is up to a law enforcement uh, officer and not, you know, a, uh, an ex-spouse or somebody who's going through a, you know, a nasty divorce or something like that. Um, in Virginia, we actually had uh, family members uh, in a, a case uh, accuse another family member of, uh, of being a risk and it was a subject to a red flag petition. The ex-part hearing was held, the, uh, uh, the firearms were taken, then they were returned. Uh, Ultimately, but of course, you know, after this guy had to go through uh, all all that rigmarole. And as you say, those protections aren't there in this federal piece of legislation. But but what are your concerns about a federalized red flag law as opposed to, you know, individual states putting in their own mechanisms?
1: Well, one is you know we have federalism for a reason and i think uh, the citizens of each state can choose what they what sort of uh, red flag implementations they they would like to have in their state they can vote on it they you know Local government is easier to uh, to to influence, right? And so I think each state can the citizens of each state can decide what they what they want for their state. I think as a principle we ought to operate that way. My my bigger problem I think is that we see the politi- the politicization of federal law enforcement. Um, don't have to point out any specific examples, but just you know just some of the things that are in the news right now. The FBI raid on Project Veritas. We look at the FBI's role in the um, Steele dossier and some of these other things, you know, l- trust of federal law enforcement is at an all time low. And I think to to bring f- to give federal law enforcement now this new power to come into any state uh, and it talks specifically about the U.S. Marshals being involved in this um, it's such a political federal law enforcement is being used as a political weapon against uh, against opponents. And uh, and I just don't think um, we as a people should trust federal law enforcement with this new power. If if this needs to be done, it could be done at the state level. And the state voters should decide what they want in their state. Um, so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that fundamentally even if the language were
0: tweaked to, you know, re- restrict who can uh, apply for one of these things to, to law enforcement, that you're fundamentally opposed to the idea of a federal red flag law uh, being in place, generally speaking, because of the politicization uh, that we would see and that we have seen among federal law enforcement agencies. So it sounds to me like that's sort of—is this just a no-go bill for you?
1: I I think for me personally, it's a no-go bill. There's, there's no reason to have this. Again, states can implement these red flag laws if they choose to. So far, I think it's 17 or 19 states have chosen to do that. That's fine. Now, now let's talk about how do we narrow the gate? How do we increase the consequences for, for those that falsely report and what that should look like? Um, but there's no need to do this at the federal level. One
0: of the things that, um, one of the concerns that I have about uh, red flag laws and, and you know, for, for those who missed our previous conversation with Ryan, my, my main objection is we already have civil commitment laws in this country. Uh, I think we have a broken mental health system in this country. And I think that red flag laws in many ways allow for lawmakers to avoid doing the really tough work of fixing our mental health system and say, well, you know, we can take the guns away from them temporarily, leaving behind a person who a judge believes to be a danger to themselves or others, but who still has access to knives and belts and gasoline and keys and everything else that they could do to, to harm themselves or others. Um, But one of the other issues I have, Ryan, is that, you know, if if you're charged with a crime and you can't afford an attorney, you have a constitutional right to have one provided for you. Right. You have access to a public defender. But these red flag laws aren't criminal cases. They're civil cases. So it it may be that you're still facing a prosecutor or a state's attorney or I guess in a in the case of a federal red flag law, a, a, a representative of the U.S. attorney's office. But if you can't afford an attorney, you're on your own, right? I mean, like you don't get to have a court appointed attorney in a red flag hearing. Do you know what the federal what, what this bill, uh,
1: this federal legislation, uh,
0: how that treats your
1: right to an attorney? Yeah, it does. So it talks about. So there's there's two hearings. There's there there's the hearing where the first petition is put in front of a judge, and that's the order to to confiscate firearms and ammunition. That one, there is no representation of the individual, and we can come back and talk about one fix to these red flag laws that I would like to see implemented. I'll just say it now. um I think you should be a party at that hearing um if If you are in fact a risk and you and and, and they can represent that evidence, why not bring the person in front of that judge with proper legal representation? And 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 just deal with it there. These that the trouble I have with the current implementation of red flag laws is that these hearings are done without the defendant, let's call them. Um, I'm not a lawyer again, but let's call them the defendant with no knowledge that this is happening. And so this is all happening in the background. You and I, if if somebody uh, made a claim or a petition against us, wouldn't even know it was happening until law enforcement knocks on the door. That to me seems wrong. There's no reason if this person is an imminent threat, law enforcement should go out, bring bring that person in front of a judge and judge that competency of that person or that imminent at that threat level of that person. That's how I'd like to see those changed in this particular bill. However, there is um, a provision for uh, those that can't afford their own legal representation to have federal legal representation. At that second hearing, this is the one to determine whether or not the red flag order becomes a, quote unquote, permanent order, which in this law is a six month or 180 day order. But that order. And by the way, I have to say, I'm I'm
0: pleasantly surprised to see that that provision was included because it is absent in. Uh, in fact, I'm not aware of any state-level red flag law that actually has that provision where you are entitled to uh, a court-appointed attorney if you can't afford one. Uh, is, is that is that – well, let me make sure that I understood that correctly. Is it just that the second hearing you have access to an attorney if you can hire one or or under this federal legislation, even if you can't afford an attorney, you would still have access to some sort of federal public defender uh, some if, some, if you were the yeah, I subject? I
1: remember the – yeah, and I can't remember the name of the service, but there's some federal service that will come okay. in and represent you at that second hearing. And okay. That's, that I as I as I read the bill again, not a lawyer. Yeah. Um it sounds to me like that could be done pro bono on your okay. behalf.
0: Well, again, that that is that I'm pleasantly surprised to see that because like I said, I'm not aware of any state-level red flag law that uh, has that provision in place and that's that's a huge concern that's been a concern Uh, Even of uh, uh, some supporters of red flag laws who say, you know, look, this this really kind of puts the uh, again, the defendant, the subject uh, uh, of these uh, red flag petitions um, at a legal disadvantage here. But I, I have to ask, I mean, you know, when you see the push right now for this federal red flag legislation, um, and this is one of those items, you know, Ryan, where uh, gun control advocates will say, "Look, well, this is a common sense gun safety measure. Um, why why even people like Ryan here uh, agree with the idea of red flag laws. Do you do you find that they don't really want to get into the debate that they don't want to hear what your objections are? I mean, you and I may never uh, ultimately agree on uh, the, the necessity or utility of red flag laws, but you and I can sit and have a conversation. Uh, about your point of view and my point of view, and where we agree and where we disagree are the are, are the gun control activists interested in having that debate, or is it really you know uh, sit down and shut up and let us pass our laws
1: no this this is just another uh, another weapon, if you will, in their battle, um, and so they, that's, that's how they look at this they They look at any opportunity for the government to step in and restrict our freedoms and our rights as a win. And so there really is no discussion and debate uh, with them over over these um, provisions or red flag laws or, quite frankly, any other gun control measure that that they support that there, there is no discussion and debate. And so the good news for this bill, it doesn't appear to me that it's going anywhere. Um, it It is a it is not a bipartisan bill as near as i can tell it is, is a one sided bill it may get a hearing and pass the house that that's a possibility but i think um it's unlikely to pass in in in, in the senate of course if it got to the president's desk it would probably get get signed uh unfortunately but now, what we should be talking about, and again, this bill only talks about firearms and ammunition. And it goes back to the point you made earlier. The real problem here is that if somebody is a threat, then we need to deal with that that person as the threat. It doesn't talk about other weapons that may be in the house. There could be baseball bats and knives and other things other than firearms. If that person's truly a threat, then we need to get them the help that they need. And this bill does none of that. And most red flag laws. Don't do that. And I think at some level, they are an excuse not to deal with the larger problem. And quite frankly, we've tied the hands of law enforcement and, and and made it so difficult that they shy away from things like civil commitment or or trying to work with people to get them into the mental health system. Although I know law enforcement's changing and they're, they're working very, they've got these crisis intervention teams, they're working very hard to try to bring mental health into the picture. But if we really truly believe somebody's a threat, we should work to get them the help they need. And, and I, I just don't think, at a federal level, this doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, and I, I listen. I'm 100% agreement with, with you on that. Uh, and you know, and as for law enforcement, look, I, I I feel their frustration. I mean, we're dealing with this on a daily basis in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We do not have enough inpatient mental health beds, and so when officers are called and they you know come out to somebody who's in crisis. Oftentimes in the state of Virginia, that person will sit in a jail cell for several days before a bed opens up, and they can even take them into, you know, an intake facility for a mental health check. Um, that's a that's a problem, and and uh, I I gotta say I'm glad that uh, you and I are on the same page here, and that this is, I think, a way for politicians to uh, to look for that easy fix, that that soundbite solution, uh, as I call it, instead of. And look, you know, I'm I'm It's a huge issue to tackle mental health. We're talking about, you know, raising money to uh, uh, build more beds, to provide more treatment like none of that comes free. Uh, And, you know, that 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 involves some very painful discussions about where that money is going to come from. And I know politicians would rather prefer to talk about something that isn't going to cost huge outlays of money that uh, that they can, you know, sell to the public as just an easy, quick fix that uh, uh, is painless for for most people. And uh, I, I just you know, if we're going to deal with this issue, if we're going to substantially deal with this issue, then I don't think that we can afford to dance around uh, what what really lies at the heart of this issue. And and to me, that really is mental health and making sure that folks uh, who are in crisis can get the help that they need, because that's what we want for everybody. Um, Ryan Petty, as always, my friend, thank you so much for coming to the program. I could spend hours with you, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again very soon.
1: All right, Cam. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan.
0: Appreciate Ryan joining us on the program, and again, I uh, I appreciate his activism and his involvement and his uh, passion on these issues as well. Um, we may not always a- a- agree, but I think that we can disagree in good faith, and again, I think we have a lot more common ground than we do differences of opinion. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report from the uh, New York Post where they say a New York teenager who allegedly murdered an innocent or a New York teenager allegedly murdered an innocent kid after getting probation just last year in an armed robbery the uh, New York Post says a Bronx teenager cut loose by a judge in an armed robbery prosecution over the prosecutor's objections only to proceed to allegedly murder a quote innocent kid in a botched gang hit 17-year-old Steven Mendez who was once busted for allegedly pulling a gun on his own mom, could have been uh, kept behind bars for up to four years, the Post writes, after pleading guilty in the violent armed robbery in 2020. Instead, the reputed gang member was freed on five years probation back in May on the judge's discretion. And that, according to the Post, allowed Mendez to allegedly fatally shoot a, quote, completely innocent individual, 21-year-old Sakukoma, uh, last month, what uh, prosecutors say may have been a case of mistaken identity fueled by gang members out for vengeance. Koma's mother, Hajekera, told the New York Post, the judge let him go. But I'm not letting it go. My son will get justice. This is crazy. He didn't deserve to be out there. A killer is a killer. He's going to do it again. The uh, most recent victim's father, Amar Boulikoma, said the judge's decision to free Mendez was, quote, insane. So what is wrong with this judge? If this was the judge's son or his nephew or relative, he wouldn't let him go. The city, the mayor, if this was his kid, they wouldn't let him go. They do not care about us. And, you know, I have to say, I have heard statements like this so often over the past few years. Victims or their family members saying that the criminal justice system doesn't seem to care much about victims. That the system cares far more about those accused and even those convicted of violent crimes than the victims of those violent criminals themselves, and I, I, I can't disagree when you see a case like this. You know, this is and we and we talked yesterday on the program about um, New York gun laws. And the public defenders who uh, are, are calling for the overthrow or the overturning of uh, New York's carry laws, because right now it's a violent felony in New York to simply carry a gun without a license. So you've got people who are going to prison for simply carrying a firearm, simply possessing a firearm without a license that they can't receive. And in that same city, you've got 17-year-olds who are walking away on probation after committing a violent armed robbery. That seems pretty messed up, doesn't it? I mean, carrying a firearm without a permit, I don't believe should be a crime at all. But even under New York law, it would have to be considered a victimless crime. Who's harmed by you simply possessing a firearm without a New York carry permit? No one. Clearly there's harm done when there's an armed robbery. And yet you've got a criminal justice system in New York that appears to treat Unlicensed gun possession as more of a concern than a 17 year old committed a stick up. Now, today's uh, armed citizen story. Don't have a lot of details on this. Happened overnight. A uh, suspected robber shot inside a uh, Sacramento home. This was in uh, South Sacramento. Uh, I said it was overnight. Actually, it was. Uh, I guess we have a little more details than I thought. 9 a.m. Monday. I'm now looking at an updated version of the story. Uh, Sacramento police responded to a residence in the uh, 7300 block of Medigate Drive. When officers arrived, they found a, a man suffering from a gunshot wound lying in front of the home. Uh, paramedics and fire crews arrived, but the uh, man was pronounced dead on the scene. Police investigated the incident. They say based on the preliminary investigation, they determined that the man was involved in a robbery that was happening at the residence. Uh, one of these residents then pulled out a gun and shot the suspect. Uh, the resident who shot the suspect has been identified, has been contacted by detectives. Uh, but uh, that's all the information we know at this point. Um, it would appear to be an act of self-defense. Somebody is the victim of a robbery. They pull out a gun. They uh, shoot the robber. But uh, we'll see if we get any more details. Given that this is uh, California we're talking about, I, you know, there's always a the possibility. I mean, this was a clear-cut case of self-defense. Prosecutors might want to uh, try to charge the individual. But based on the preliminary information, Uh, It certainly looks like this was a uh, justified shooting. And uh, finally today, our good deed of the day. Police officers in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, even if it may get a little wet, to save a woman's life. This was in uh, Port Orange, Florida, where a woman ran off the road and into a canal. You can see uh, officers there entering the water, breaking the window, pulling her out of the sinking car. Uh, The uh, department which is located in Volusia County, south of Daytona Beach. And it's another great example of the Port Orange police officer's daily commitment to the safety of their community uh, and their willingness to put themselves in harm's way to protect a stranger. And uh, at last report, woman is going to be all right. Car, probably not so much. But, you know, stuff can be replaced. Lives cannot. So in the right place at the right time. we able to do the right thing. Our uh Hat tip today to those officers there in uh, Port Orange, Florida. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. But coming up tomorrow, we will have a, another program for you. We've got, uh, we'll get you caught up on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information throughout the uh, nation. Also, going to uh, celebrate Veterans Day with a uh, great new patriotic song. We're going to introduce you to the artist behind it. That's coming up on the next edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Until we speak again, be well, be safe. Started the music a little late this time, didn't I? feel like I should keep talking a little bit longer just so I can get that emotional uh, hook there with the music, but I don't think so. I'll just tell you again, be well, be safe, and of course, be free.